This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You've got to have the right case because if you take it up and it's the wrong case, then you can make some really bad law that's going to affect a lot of plaintiffs. There's always an answer. The joy is in finding. One of the reasons that I love being a lawyer is this exact process. The way we live our life has nothing to do with the presentation sequence at trial. As trial lawyers, we pick up and move on and keep going. You're losing or gaining one out of every 10 jurors, which can really make a huge difference in the ultimate result of the case. Whatever you think about, you create. Learn all you can and never stop. And then have the guts to try case after case after case. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation, your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, we welcome back Joe Freed. Uh, Joe was actually the first person I ever recorded a podcast with uh, for Trial Lawyer Nation, and I'm glad to have him back. How are you doing today, Joe? Doing great, and I appreciate you having me back. It means I didn't screw up too bad the first time, maybe. No, you did great the first time, and I'm sure we'll do even better the the second time. Uh, For those that don't know, and and you get more details in the show notes, but Joe runs an incredibly successful uh, trucking law firm in Atlanta, Georgia. You're also a partner in a trucking law firm in Florida, correct? Yes, that's right. And just is probably the best trucking lawyer, and I I almost hesitate to say that, given that I'm also consider myself a trucking lawyer, but I, I think Joe's the best in the country, and I'm glad that you have come in and agreed to talk to us. Well, I appreciate the high accolades. I'm not sure I deserve them, but um, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to speaking to you. And, and you know, I'm a big, I'm a big Michael Cowan fan, so um, I'm happy to be here. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate it. Well, I'm going to jump right in. Uh, if people want more of your history and how you got into this stuff, listen to one of the early uh, episodes. It's back there. But I want to jump right in. You last year got an incredible set of settlements on cases. Uh, I mean, multiple eight figures. I don't remember the exact numbers, but they were mind boggling. How did you get so much more money on cases where other people have the same injury and the same liability facts and get, you know, great settlements, eight, 10 million, but not like 20, 40, 50 million dollars? Well, if I could just figure that out, Michael. <laughs> no, um, you know, well, I think you did I- figure it out. You did it. <laughs> I think that um, a big change for me happened several years ago when I uh, really kind of challenged my own valuation paradigms. Because one, one thing's for sure, when if you're like I was a few years ago, where you look around and you say, man, I feel like other people are, are getting bigger numbers than I am for cases, the question becomes why? And, you know, a, a lot of times for me, I went through lots of self-justification for a long period of time. I said, well, those, that venue was a better venue or they must not have had any, any blemishes on their case or, you know, maybe the insurance situation was different and all those things might be true, but I was the common denominator in my case, just like the other lawyers listening to this or the common denominator in their own case. And what I started to realize was that, that I was my own limiting belief for a long time on valuing cases. And you'd hear, you know, you'd hear how the world has changed and every all these nuclear verdicts and all these different numbers, and you'd see all these numbers. And and um 
and you know, frankly, I now think that for a long time I left a lot of money on the table. Um, and if I could take a minute, I'll tell you my, you know, when I when I first started, well, first of all, I think it's important to realize when you go to law school, one of the many things they don't teach you is how to value a case, right? You don't get one class in that. Um, so you come out and who does indoctrinate you on the value? How do you know what a broken arm case is? Uh, how do you know what a wrongful death case is in your venue? And I think it's a combination of things, but but one is you see what happens in your venue. You, 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 people who are close to you, who mentor you, they provide you with numbers, but also the insurance company tells us, and we somehow, and for some reason, believe it. And we, well, you know, and, um, and so for me, when I came out of school, I remember, I remember my, my mentor at the time, you know, told me on a wrongful death case, argue me up or down from a million dollars. And I never challenged that. I never, I just simply internalized it. It became my dialogue with myself and with anybody else who would listen. And it kind of sounded cool. So I'd repeat it, argue me up or down from a million. Or it'd find its way into demand letters. It'd find its way into probably closing arguments. I mean, you know, I mean, who knows what the hell it found its way into. But at some point along the line, I'd look over and say, well, that guy over there got 12 million. And that guy got... Eight million. That guy got twenty million, and you sit there and go, "Boy, that that person, that lawyer, really argued up a lot from a million dollars." I mean, how did they yeah. do that? And then what struck me is they're not doing that. They're not arguing up or down from a million dollars. And then it struck me like a lead balloon. I mean, just really knocked me like a sledgehammer. And it was sort of that sick feeling I got in my stomach. And other lawyers, I think may, maybe some of them have had this, where you realize that for a long time you had bought into a paradigm that was not that was of your own making. And that's what it was for me is to sit there and say, wait a minute, the whole paradigm is wrong. Arguing me up or down is wrong. The whole idea of a million dollars shouldn't be even part of the dialogue. And why isn't why and who decided this and who accepted it? And the answer to the second question was me. I accepted it. And I never challenged it. And so that's the beginning of what I think has to be talked about is if I ask you, you know, Michael or, or, or anybody who might be listening to this, what's the value of a death case? What's the value of a broken arm case? I don't care if you handle, quote, big cases or, quote, small cases. Who said that's the value and why do they get to say it? And have you even taken the time to challenge it for yourself? And I don't mean that to be critical. I, I started by showing you mine and saying I didn't for a long time. And so step number one needs to be to challenge your own paradigm. And I think part of it also is dealing with your fear, because when I was growing up, also what I was told is if I overreach, I'll get my whole arm cut off and my yeah. whole credibility will be gone. And I think that's BS. I think that feeds the, the what's true is if you don't believe your number and you go in and try to sell a number, and you know what I mean by that, selling something that you don't believe in, you will get cut. But that's not the same as, quote, over asking, because the other truth is that the jury has no idea what the value of a case is. They know a lot less than you do. They know a lot less than insurance companies do. They don't know anything about the value. So it's all at the end of the day is a battle of credibility 
and a battle of what do you believe your case is worth? And how much do you believe that? And how credible are you in asking for it? So what did you do to adjust your own thinking? Well, the first thing I did is I busted as much as I could the sledgehammer with a sledgehammer, the value that I thought things were. And I started to question in every case. And that's what I would ask your people to do right now. That case you're thinking about, the one that you can't get out of your mind on value, that you're saying, where, where, what's, it, what's it worth? And you're stuck in some area, but you'd really like to be in a different area. Start to ask yourself, you know, what's the foundation for any of this? And it really comes back to some things that have nothing to do with the case. I think it has to do with your relationship with money. And if you're like me, it's not easy to ask for money. Um, I don't like asking for it for a fundraiser. And I don't like asking for it in front of a jury. I don't like asking. And you know, if I examine my world and I look back and I, I was brought up with certain money messages, um, I was brought up that you don't talk about money, that it's kind of rude to talk about money and that, um, you know, all those kind of things. And maybe you can relate to what I'm saying. Um, I mean, what was it like? How would your parents talk to you about money or would they? How would they talk to each other about money? And, um, you know, what you do with money and what the value of money is. And I think that those things, it's worth taking time. So you asked me what I did. I started to look at these things for the very first time. I stopped, I stopped listening to the voice that said the case is worth X. And I said, how do we know what it's worth? And I, and, and I'm still on the journey. So I'm not done looking at it because I look at it, try to look at it fresh and not get stuck. But when you start thinking about it, you start thinking about things that we deal with all the time. Again, whether we're dealing with big, huge cases or, quote, not so huge cases. But you think about something like pain. And if it's real that our client is going through something that causes them pain every day, the kind of pain that, that you can't sleep well at night, it disturbs your sleep, it disturbs your normal, what you'd like to do with your life. It makes it so that it changes your relationship with your spouse. It changes how available you are to your kids or, or, or to yourself or whatever. If that's real, shouldn't it be huge? If it, It's one thing if it's a question about whether it's real or not. I get that. But if it's real, then isn't it huge? I mean, the limitations that somebody else unfairly put on our lives. To me, I, I'm at a place where... where I'm very, very comfortable now having thought through these things a lot and said, you know, if you, if I limit my life, I get to do that. But if you limit my life because of your negligence, you know, you know, who the hell gave you the right to do that? I mean, I, you know, so to me, those are, those have become very real and very big things. And I don't, I think about now, what would, what would I think the value is if what happened happened to the person I love most in the world. And if it's worth that for my loved one, then shouldn't it be worth that for the client? Why should it be different? And so I think it's almost like you look at it and you say, let's make it real and let's make it personal. Let's make it really personal. The person who you would fight hardest for in the world, right? And that's, I think, some of the things that are going on for me. And I, like I said, it's a it's a it's a work in progress.
what do you do then? Because now you're not just saying, well, death is a million dollars, are you up and down? Now you're saying, if what Mary went through happened to the person I love most in the world, what would it be worth? How do you learn what Mary's gone through well enough to internalize it and, and do that analysis? Well, that's a great question, isn't it? And it's, um, it's something that I know you work real hard on also, uh, because you can't, it's really hard to do that from sitting behind your desk, right? Um, you can have intuition about it sitting behind your desk if you allow yourself to feel it, but you really have to get out into that client's life and really look around and, and feel your way around that. And, and it, it comes from interacting with the client. It comes from interacting with the client's loved ones um, and not so loved ones. I mean, it's cra crazy as it seems sometimes your client's ex-spouse can provide you with tr tremendous insight. Absolutely. You know, the, the, um, their employers, people who are, so the concept of before and after witnesses to really understand, you know, the first person who has to be convinced is you. So can you really go through the process? I mean, in my, in my like um, sort of paradigm, if you will, for me in thinking about trial is and case preparation is that case preparation is a journey. And at the beginning of the case, I feel a certain way about the client. I may like the client. I may not like the client that much. I may think what the client's been through is hell. I may think what the client's been through is not so hellish, you know, and maybe even they're whining about it. And, um, you know, but whatever my truth is, that's where I am on the journey. And what is discovery and what is the case preparation? It's it's, it's my journey to get to a place where I'm ready to look at, at jurors and take them along on a journey. And so, so it's a mistake to me to, to start out a trial thinking that jurors should be where I am now. Jurors shouldn't be any further along the path than I was at the beginning. They should welcome and we should welcome their skepticism and everything else that they bring with them. They're, 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 they're probably, if you're being honest, the same feelings that you had. When you say, gee, I wish this wasn't part of my case. Gee, I wish this was a, this, why can't I get the clean case? Yep. You know, whatever those, those things are, that is, that, that's what I call the beginning of credibility. Those are all opportunities for you to be credible. And I know you believe this. Michael, because you and I have had many talks about this, and it's it's born to some degree out of some of the things that we did at Trial Lawyers College, um, and then you know beyond that when we took Trial Lawyers College things and kind of made them our own along the way, because uh, everybody's everybody I think you know we borrow from each other so liberally, but then we make we make those things ours. Um, so I guess that's what I'm trying to suggest is. Whatever you've got to do to make it real, you've got to do to make it real. But the person who needs convincing is you. And stop thinking, I got to go convince the jury. How about first and foremost, convince you and be honest? I have to remind myself, I got to be honest with myself. How do I really feel? I, I want to feel great, but do I feel great? And what would what do I want to know now? And bring that, that natural curiosity and skepticism to the table. And don't feel bad about it. You're channeling the jurors. Yeah. You may as well get it now, right? Yeah, because you're going to have to take them on that same journey. But I, I will say, when you do truly feel it, 
there seems to be a transfer of emotion that happens, even if you don't get the words right, even if you don't, you know, it's not about, I don't know, it just, it communicates non-verbally without thinking about it, if you truly feel it. And if you I, don't truly feel it, I don't think that ever happens. I, I, I agree. I think the words are the least important part of the equation, but I'll tell you what, and it, it hits on, on something because, you know, it's crazy because at the same time you say that, I, I recognize that we lawyers are so word centric. We read transcripts that pull all of that nonverbal stuff. We, it takes takes that out of the question. You look at it and you see some of the best lawyers around the United States, you know, read a closing argument. And there's not a there's not a complete sentence in the whole day. <laughs> it, 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 it sounds like this. Well, and then, you know. Yes. And of course, and you're going, wait, the person's not saying anything. The person is saying everything. And it's that struggle to even find words to express what is there is what's beautiful and what's the art of the whole thing. But I think that you have to recognize that. And, and, and part of it also is, um, and I should have said this before, once you, once you do this journey that we're talking about, part of that journey is still translating these things into dollars and cents and practicing getting in front of people and saying the words. I mean, can you say billion with a B? Can you, what does it feel like to say 100 million and to have somebody look back at you and say, what? 100 million and not just cower into a corner as soon as, well, I didn't mean 100 million, I meant a million. You know, I mean, yeah. To feel all of that emotion and, and to feel all of what it feels like to ask, it's no shame in, in practicing asking. You know, when someone says, do you, do you, how do you know what the number should be? I don't. The number has to find me and I have to find the number and I have to go back and forth and I have to, I have to practice saying it. And I think it should be this. And I get up and I start to say it and I go, you know, sometimes I go, wow, that's just too much. I can't, I, that's not right. And other times I go, wait a minute. It's, it's much more than that. If this is real, then it's much more than that. And then you start and you practice it and you practice it. You know, we use focus groups all the time to, to look for technical, you know, things. Well, how about using them to just be a practice board for you to ask for money, see what it feels like, and then hear the feedback. It's tremendous. And it's a necessary and woefully inadequately practiced skill set. My other big block, and I didn't even know I had it, was just my own relationship with money and that, you know, somehow, I don't know if I thought that I wasn't deserving of money or if I thought that money was somehow, you know, dirty uh, or big business was somehow dirty because, you know, outside the trial stuff for years, I resisted running my law firm like a business. I found ways, no matter how much money I made, to end up with very little of it uh, myself uh, through bad business deals, bad case decisions, whatever it was. Uh, and it wasn't until I fixed what was going on in my head that I was able to have success and then enjoy any of the success. Yeah. And so how did you do that? I should interview you. Oh, uh, how did I do that? Well, one recognition of it was part of, was a big part of it. Some psychodrama work, honestly, uh, I mean, I, I'm not ashamed to say it, a lot of psychotherapy, uh, but not just the psychotherapy, but when the psychotherapist said, you have a problem with codependency and then reading and listening to audiobooks and learning all I could and saying, wow, this rings true to me. 
and not even realizing that beliefs that I just were came naturally to me uh, in the instinctive ways that I would react to things natural were not healthy. Uh, and then just recognizing them and just telling myself that's not healthy and start working on it. So, so hearing you say that, um, first of all, it, it resonates with me as well. And, you know, I've done a lot of work on me also. Um, but part of what I think we're both talking about is to, is to shine a light on the discomfort of the whole thing uh-huh. and to be honest about it. You know, I mean, when somebody, when, when I love it, when, when I work with someone, I just worked with somebody just before we started, he's getting ready for a trial and, and he starts off by saying, well, I'm afraid that the jury is going to think blah, blah, blah. And I, I know that as soon as they say that, I know there's a part of them that believes that. And I go, well, what part of you believes that? Oh, not a bit. I'm like, you're kidding yourself. You do. Let's be honest about it. I mean, what part of you believes that no amount of money will bring Johnny back? So what the hell are we doing here? So here's the crazy thing. The crazy thing is that we have been led to believe, we plaintiff's lawyers have been led to believe that if we're honest about things like that, that it hurts us. And I'm telling you, I'm proof positive that that's not true. That the credibility that comes from willing to be vulnerable and honest is dramatic. And when you can come up and say, you know, I think that this whole idea of money for death, money for the life of a child, it it sometimes disgusts me. It always offends me. And I think if God forbid it was my child, how offended I would be. And, no, and, and I think beyond that, no matter how much money you give this mom, she's going to go home at the end of this trial and fall onto her little girl's bed and sniff the sheets. And she's going to go to the closet that she hasn't had the wherewithal to clean out yet. And she's going to run her hand down the little dresses. And um, it's not going to change a damn thing, is it? And so why are we here? And what if you could give voice to that in a trial? You know, you're meeting people where they really are, folks. If you do that, if you're willing to take the what feels like a courageous move to be open, and it is courageous because it's not what we're taught to do. But when you can do that and you can say, so here, and, and then you can start to answer that. And you can say, you know, there's not a perfect correlation here, and, you know. But if I say to you now on the heels of me saying that, uh, Michael, can you, Michael Juror, can you appreciate why um, this mother needs to see a huge number on the piece of paper that says what's the value of her relationship with her little girl? Can you appreciate why she needs to see that number? And it's got to be huge because it's the only damn thing we got. It could be marbles, tiddlywinks but it's dollars and cents. So can you appreciate why it has to be huge? I don't have any trouble appreciating that, difficulty appreciating that, right? Yeah. So we just have to get right with ourselves on what we're really doing. And once you do this incredibly powerful combination of vulnerability and honesty and stuff, it's what people are starving for. And it creates a magic in a courtroom and way beyond a courtroom. I mean, you said, what are you doing to get these things settled for the numbers that you're getting them settled for? I think the first thing is I'm getting them ready to try. 
and I, everything that I do in the case, I'm measuring against the idea of, is this going to be a trial? And I'm getting it ready for that. Um, I don't fight for settlements anymore when people, you know, I don't get upset. I think it's really obviously incongruent when you go into a mediation, you pound your chest and say, I'm going to kick your butt at trial. And then you, and then you put a $25,000 mediation presentation on to me, that doesn't say I'm ready for trial. That means I really hope you'll settle the case right now in mediation. So when someone doesn't settle, I don't get mad anymore. Why would I be mad if I really was thinking that I could do better at trial? I just say, thank you for the opportunity to come here. You've had your chance. I told you what the case could resolve for. I'm going to give you a few extra days when this is over to see if you change your mind. And if not, that's fine. That's what trials are for. I really don't get mad. And um, so anyway, I'm rambling, but. That's great stuff. But I think the, the key thing that I, that I would say is I think we're our limiting belief. And it's hard not to be because we all develop heuristics for the way we operate. We all have businesses of the practice of law, like you were saying before. And you have other lawyers and people who are helping you get cases ready to be resolved. And you have to give input on you know, what should be asked for and what's the range that should be asked for in this kind of case or that kind of case. And so all of those things, I think, counterbalance against what you and I are talking about today, which is to make it unique and personal, very personal. You got to get out of your office to do it. It's a lot harder to do that on smaller cases where you can't, you, you don't have the um, the luxury of being able to spend the time on those cases. No, and I think for the listeners that, you know, have too many cases, and sometimes that's not their choice because they work for somebody else or just, you know, they need to have enough to keep the lights on. Pick one, pick your best one and work the heck out of that one. And that's what will beget your next big one. Very true. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to delisi at cowanlaw.com. That's D-E-L-I-S-I at cowanlaw.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. And now, back to the show. Now, one thing I think when we get real with case values, you know, sometimes we find cases that other people wouldn't value so high and we value them a lot higher. Uh, Sometimes we find that the value isn't as high as we'd like it to be. Have you ever experienced that? I have experienced it. And I, and I really am proud of you for bringing that up because we don't like talking about those. Those aren't the sexy cases uh, that we talk about, but it's also so true. And then, so then, the, and, and it brings the next point, which is, but yet we feel like we got to go save that case from itself somehow. Right. And boy, those are bad mistakes. They you really know? are. Um, you end up going and spending a ton of effort on something that, um, if anything, if nothing else, you're the wrong lawyer to pursue, right? At that point, you've not, you're not the lawyer who can get up there and credibly ask for the for whatever a lot is for that case, whatever full 100% is for that case. So get the hell out of the way. 
You know, I mean, that's that's the and it's so hard for me. It sounds so easy when it comes out of my mouth. But in real practice, you know, all those business parts of being a lawyer poke in and say, well, maybe I should just go settle this thing, get what I can out of it, recover my costs out of it, you know, blah, 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 blah. Next thing you know, you're going to trial. Those are the cases they, they make you try, you know. So um, definitely has ha- happened to me. And, you know, the hard part is to have that is to recognize it honestly and then to be honest, even with the client about it. Say, you know, here's what I see here. And I can't do more than I believe in. Yeah. I had to have a hard talk with a lawyer in my office and he, he brought in a a death case direct. It was, you know, his, his origination and no referral lawyer, which is really, really rare at our firm and would have been really good given our financial deal for him. But it, I did not think it was just to sue the trucking company in that case. I don't think that anything wrong. And, and frankly, I don't want to, I don't want to put, a widow through two or three years of false hope to get a settlement that's not going to honor the value of the deceased and not going to make any material change in her life. There's a bigger thing at play there, Michael. And, and it goes, you know, you said, you know, one of the, it goes to this and that's that we're not judged based on one case. The long, you know, this is a practice of law and, and you're foolish if you don't think that your actions are being watched and cataloged at some level. And especially if you start to gain some success in the world, whether it's big cases or not big cases, the other side, people know. And so, you know, I'm very careful and increasingly and have been for a long time careful on what I'm willing to put my name on because I want to be able to, at the end, in the right case, I want to be able to say, I want the world to know that if my name's on something, it's a winner. More likely than not, I'm going to prevail and I'm not going to be in there BSing. And so I really try not to be the lawyer. And I say I try because sometimes I fail and I, and I do it anyway. But I try to really be honest about the process. And, and that does change the value of your cases. I just had a meeting. I'm not going to mention the name of the trucking company, but they came to Atlanta um, on a case. I made a I made a 40 plus million dollar demand in the case and they asked to come and talk to me. And and they, they, the guy on the other side said, Joe, um, you know, I've got a lot of respect for you. I don't see the case in this. I don't see the case the way you do, but I've got enough respect for you. I want to really understand how you see the case, because I'm missing something if you look, if you're seeing it this way. And we had an open dialogue with each other. And we at least were able to identify where the where the issue was. And um, and so it turns out he, he, he said, well, I now see where I need to go, because either I'm going to prove that I'm right about this piece or I'm going to prove that I'm wrong about this piece, in which case you, you should get more money in the case. Great. To me, that was a successful meeting. Yeah. Right? Um. So I, the point that I'm making is when you you're judged as much by the cases you say no on and the things that you own in a case that are dangerous for you, those are the things that it's contraintuitive. You think you're giving the farm away, but you're winning the war. Anyway, I don't know. Some people would criticize what I'm trying to suggest, but I'm, what I'm trying to suggest is that credibility goes way beyond a single case. I agree. And, you know, I don't mind taking on a tough case if I believe in it. Absolutely. You know, uh, 
there's some cases I've taken that, you know, at first glance aren't obvious, you know, let's say like a truck parked on the shoulder of the road that shouldn't have been parked there. And they're like, well, how can you sue a truck when, you know, when someone just rear into the back of it? But if I don't believe in it, I just can't do it. We're, we're both saying the same thing. It's not saying we don't take hard cases. I mean, the best results I have are in cases that were really, really hard cases. But it's, but but I had to come to a point where I believed in them. I, I'll, I'll only I'm only willing to live in limbo land for a little while while I look and I don't attach my credibility to the case. There people call me. I just had it happen recently with a defense lawyer. He said, oh, you've taken on this case. I said, I have, but I'm not ready to put my credibility on, on it yet. I'm doing my investigation and I'll let you know once I'm finished with that, we can have a talk. And he said, no, I appreciate that. And, you know, I looked and we had a, we just today after this, we're having our talk. Um, but anyway, we're saying the same thing. And I think it's, I think it's mission critical, you know, you know so it's, we, we've talked about paradigm. Part of that is being honest with ourselves in all of these different ways and, you know, and being willing to be vulnerable. I'd like to kind of switch gears a little bit and talk a little something about working up cases. And because it's a conversation that you and I actually had, I think we went and you had a deposition in San Antonio. We went and had a, a bite to eat uh, before the night before. Uh, and you had an expert deposition coming up. And I was taught by the person who taught me to try cases. The quote he gave is, a matador doesn't tell the bull how he's going to kill him. So either don't depose the defense expert or just get the opinions, get the basis, and get out and don't do any kind of cross. And when I asked you, are you doing a trial depot? Are you doing a discovery depot? You said, there's no difference to me. Um, I try to kill them every time. Or, I don't remember exact words, but something um, something like that. Can you expound on that? Sure. Um, I, I'm happy to. And, and I'll, I'll tell you, you know, to me, there are there have only been a few times when I have taken a deposition where I was certain that the case, reasonably certain the case was going to be going to go to trial. Um, you know, there are times I get invited now into cases. Uh, not long ago, I, I tried a case a couple of weeks after I first introduced the case. I ended up taking a couple of quick depositions in the middle before the trial. And you know, I knew those cases were trial cases. And in those cases, um, all I did was set up a few things with, with an expert. Uh, but, the, but in my reality, uh, in cases that I'm involved in that aren't that last minute being brought in, the vast, 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 vast majority of those cases resolve. And I mean, 95% of them, even ones that I'm brought in to try, I'll take a couple of depositions and then the case will settle. And, and so the question, and a lot of times that's because my own client is going to insist upon it, whether I want the case to, to try or not. So I'm being really honest here, not even... Sometimes I want to settle cases. Sometimes the client wants to settle cases. But the, but the truth that I, what I'm getting at is if I'm going to maximize the result in the case, I'm only going to maximize the result in terms of settlement if I, if I do the best I can to nail the other side and whatever the deposition is that I'm getting ready to take and show them that I can do that. Now, I know the criticism to that. I, I, can, I, I, can create, I can argue the other side of this all day long. And sometimes I do, and that you know, have that. And I'm not going to say that I never just leave something in there that I've tucked in for later, because I do do that. But for the most part, my my feeling is that I want to give. If the case is probably going to get settled, 
I want to get the best money I can for the case. And I know that one of the big line items on that report that goes back to the insurance company in terms of value is how'd my expert do? And if I go kick that expert in the teeth, there's a much higher likelihood that the case is going to be resolved well for my client. And so I, I, I know that the answer to this is, well, you could have gone and got a bigger number at trial. Yes, I could have. Probably could have. And I could have gone through the appeals and the delays and the risk of trial. And sometimes that's smart to do. But um, sometimes the reality is that the case is going to probably resolve. The other thing I'll tell you is the flip side. And that is that for the most part, trials are really not trials of ambush anymore. And courts will do things to protect the person who you're about to ambush at a trial. And so you have to be really careful uh, with things that you, quote, set up for trial, uh, that that it doesn't look like an ambush and look like it's unfair. Um, I've had, I could give you examples of times where that hasn't worked out for me, even though that was my strategy. Um, I'm not saying it can't work, but I'm saying you have to be careful uh, of those situations. If done right, I can kick their butt and there's not a damn thing they can do about it to change it for trial because I do some things in that same deposition to insulate from them being able to modify things very much at trial, if that makes sense. It does. I've, I've changed my paradigm because most of the cases that I'm working on now, I'm trying to work on the top five cases at the firm. Most of those cases are going to resolve. I mean, I'd love to try them. I mean, if I have to pick any of the cases of the firm to try, those are the ones to try. But the, the numbers usually get to a point that during that week of first week of trial, weekend before trial, uh, they get too high. And so I go in there with the goal of, can I get a deposition that I can play in my case in chief from the defense witness? And I don't say I meet that goal every time, but when you start getting, you know, motions from the other side to de-designate their own experts and you, and you're designating their experts, it really does change the value conversation. Oh yeah. I've had them. I've had several lately where they're de-designating their expert before the end of the deposition. Yeah. <laughs> Which Take is awesome. Break. Take a break. We don't really have to continue, Mr. Freed, because we're de-designating this witness. I don't know. We're just getting started because this, yeah. guy's, this guy's become my witness now. Um, but, you know, the, the reality is, is, you know, trials are great. And I know we're supposed to always be saying trial, trial, trial. And people who know me know that I do that. And I do really prepare. It's not it's not um, lip service. I prepare every case like I'm getting ready to try it. And, um, you know, but the, the reality is. There's cases that I've resolved in settlement that I firmly believe that it was it was in the best interest of the client to resolve the case in the in, in, in the settlement because I don't think I would have ultimately by the time the trial was done and the appeals and everything else that I would have really done better for the client. There's lots of reasons to resolve a case, and you have to look at the client's risk tolerance and situation and you know the fact that they don't get a second chance. There's a lot of things you have to look at. No question. Enjoying the episode. Do you wish you had Trial Lawyer Nation on the go? Well, wish no more. The Trial Lawyer Nation app is available now exclusively on iOS devices. Access our entire podcast library, create a favorites list, search for old and new episodes, and much more. It truly is Trial Lawyer Nation at your fingertips. Download this free app now and enjoy the top legal podcast for plaintiff attorneys wherever you go. I want to move to another topic, and that's motivation. You know, 
and I don't know, you know, and I don't need to know the details of, you know, your partnership details and your referring lawyer details, but from the year you had last year, you probably made enough money where money is not going to be a driving factor for you it, unless, you know, there is only so many changes in your life money makes once you get beyond a certain point. Uh, what is it that motivates you to keep working so hard? Well, I'm a really bad investor. <laughs> so I make money in, in law and lose it everywhere else. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I'm only partially just kidding. You know, uh, you know, I mean, first, first of all, by the time you do pay all, all the things that come out of things, I wish I had the money people think I have, but I don't. Um, and my wife and I, um, are heavy supporters of a couple of different things that are important to us in our, in our world. So we, we spend a lot of money there. But then, you know, what motivates me is, that, first of all, I, I don't know if this is going to make sense, but I finally feel like I'm a good lawyer. You know, I mean, I finally feel like it's taken me almost 30 years to get to where I am now and I finally feel good at it. And I finally feel like I can make a difference as a lawyer. I don't know what that says about me, but there's probably a whole psychology that could be written there. But so what has changed for me is a few things. I, I, I really don't focus on money aspects for me anymore. So I am interested in, um, in seeing the continued success of the people who are, who have supported me for a long time, people who are associates and younger partners in my practice, who I'm looking to, to, um, continue to raise up, uh, in that, in that world. And then the other piece is that, you know, we, we do, I'm doing a lot. I'm spending about half of my time now between maybe a little more than half of my time between teaching other trial lawyers and then being involved in the industry on the safety side of things, trying to influence safety. And on the teaching side, I would not feel as relevant or as appropriate as a teacher if I'm ever out of the game. I feel like being in the game is a necessary part of being good at being able to teach it, uh, if that makes sense. It does. And the final, the final piece is, you know, I'm challenging people and I would challenge people on this, on this, uh, who listen to this. So let's look for ways that go beyond the monetary in our cases to where, how we can affect safety, both, both as an attorney within a case on a case by case basis. I mean, we're up to now, um, having agreements from companies. There are several, a couple of hundred thousand trucks out there that are by virtue of contractual settlement agreements going to have automatic emergency braking on them in the future that may or may not have, but for the, the case that we were involved in, many trucks, tens of thousands of trucks out there now that have various types of dash cams and part of either Linux systems or smart drive systems that are there only because the case was being settled and we required that as a term of settlement uh, in the case. Um, so there are ways, and by the way, that's not just for my aggrandizement, my client, and, and or for the world's safety. My clients love that, that they were able to effectuate that kind of a change within a company through their policies and procedures and practices. So I think what I'm trying to do is continue to live a life of relevance. Um, and to me, this thing um, of practicing law uh, gives me the platform to do that as a teacher, as a safety advocate. And as a lawyer, you know, I've, I've been able to do that a couple of times, not nearly enough, but I will tell you the, there's always a little bit of guilt in settling a death case. 
especially when it's not the you know, the financial provider. Like we had one that was the, you know, my client was in her 50s, her mother was in her 70s, the mother's the one who passed away. And there was some guilt about getting money from the mother's death. But when we got a safety change as part of the settlement, it, it, it really, I think, made the client feel better about what she did because it wasn't just about money. Absolutely. Absolutely. And how many of our clients take the money that we get them and do something special with it? A lot of them do. Some don't, but a lot of them do. They go build parks. They go build gymnasiums. They go build things in honor of their loved ones. They start foundations. They do all kinds of things. Um, but so I just figured some years ago that I could contribute to that. And in some of these cases, we really do very directly contribute money to that solution. Um, at the settlement table and even, you know, our firm's money when, when needed. But, um, but it, it is something that I would ask everybody to at least consider because I promise you, your clients will love it and you're doing something that's great. If we, if, if all of us did that in just one case in this coming, in the next 12 months, think of the, think of the collective change that we will have had on the safety within the, uh, within this, the highway system in the United States. It'd be huge. So look for ways. If you have questions about how that works, I'm happy to talk about it, um, you know, and how, how we go about doing it logistically. But um, that would be my challenge to everybody. I guess I'm issuing two challenges today. One is take a sledgehammer to your, your limiting beliefs on what a case might be worth and at least, at least examine your paradigm there. If you get all the way to the end of your examination and you still feel comfortable with where it is, then fine. But my, my request is that you at least go challenge why, why? If you ask yourself, what's the value of X or Y or Z? And then the important question is why? Why and who's telling you that? Whose voice is in there that you're hearing saying it's, that's the right value? And challenge it. Um, that's the first. And, and, and the second would be we all have a duty. We, we're all so blessed to be in this field that we have this license to do what to make a difference in the world. And um, I believe that it's our duty to do that, not only not only for our clients or our law firms, but also generally for, for the good of humanity. And in our area, if you're a PI lawyer, it's about looking for, you're already looking for what systemically is wrong that brought about your, your damages. At least you should be looking for that. So once you've identified that, what are some things that can be done to address the systemic problem? And can you get an agreement as part of settlement to do that? That's it. That's the challenge. Well, I want to talk about a third challenge. Sure. Uh, and that's one where I've, I had fallen off the last couple of years. I was pretty good at it for a while. You've been incredible at it. And that's taking care of yourself. I'm getting back. I've been getting back in the groove the last few weeks. But you are inspirational. You've done, I think we were talking before, 500 37 days in a row on the Peloton? Yes, but Michael, you know, for so many years, I was so bad at it uh, that I really um, affected my health in a negative way. For I've been practicing law for approaching 30 years. And for the vast majority of that time, you know, at the beginning of it, I viewed myself as an athlete. As of a few years ago, I, I viewed myself as, a, as an overweight, not athlete anymore not even trading on old athlete status anymore. Um, and I put myself into some, you know, places where heart wasn't doing well, you know, blood sugar wasn't doing well, all those kinds of things. And so 
for me, one of the motivators was really a life or death motivator. I felt like I had, I had reached a point where if I didn't turn it around, I was on the slippery slope. And I even contemplated that I was over the slippery slope and that there was really nothing I could do. And I, I read a, a book called Atomic Habits, which is, um, I thought would be atomic, like huge. It turned out atomic was sort of at the atom level habits and how little things done consistently. It's the message that I got out of the book is little things done consistently kind of set the trajectory for where you're going to end up after a period of time. It's a lot more important than kind of the all or nothing mentality that I had um, about things. And that what I was doing was setting these, what my sort of modus operandi was, is I would say, okay, it's time. I, I would hire a trainer. I'd start to the gym. I'd do all these things. And then promptly within about three weeks, I'd get hurt. And then I was out for months trying to, you know, recuperate from being hurt. So what this kind of taught me was I can still be all or nothing, but I could be all or nothing by just choosing some smaller things that I could be consistent with. And so I made the decision that I was going to do 30 minutes of, of aerobic exercise a day. And uh, that, that was really the only initial commitment. And then that led to some other commitments, which are just to eat a little bit better and to try to make just every now and then to at least bring intentionality to my food choices. And that's really all I've done. So, but, but, it, but I've done it for 537 days now. and I'm, I'm down, I think, about 40 pounds and feel totally different. My blood sugar is perfect. My blood work is perfect. So, I mean, it, it's made a dramatic change in my life. How has that fairly short amount of time per day, but consistent amount of time per day and the changes done, how has that changed then your your law practice and your presence and your focus? Well, I think it's made me feel a lot better. So my energy levels are, are, are much better, um, you know, but but uh, in, a, in a crazy sort of a way, the pandemic helped me because I wasn't traveling as much. It's harder to do these kind of things when you're on the road. So I, I've been able to maintain my streak, but but it's it's because of advanced planning and figuring out where to now, you know, Tina, who takes care of all my scheduling, has the added piece of making sure there's a bike somewhere for me to ride, you know, wherever I go or or else I don't do it. I just took myself off of a program that I was going to teach that I was going to be gone for several days because I couldn't get to a bike. I mean, that's some people would say that that's crazy. But for me, that's the commitment that I made. So it's, you know, it's no longer something I'm willing to compromise. But it's made, it's made a big difference, really, in a, in a lot of different ways. Uh, it made me feel physically better. Uh, and you're right, it's not a long time every day. So there are times when I squeak in, my time you know, ends at 11.54 you know, p.m., just before the strike of midnight. But I, I will have put my 30 minutes in. So I, I would encourage anybody to give it a try and just don't make it bigger than it needs to be. That's the key that's been for me is it doesn't have to be huge, but even even small steps over 530 days is going to make a giant difference in your life. So listeners, we just have three little challenges for you. Change the way you think about cases and expand your mind to get exponentially more money change the industry and make the world safer in your cases and then take care of yourself while you're doing it. 
uh, it, it sounds, I'm being a little facetious, but it, uh, those are all incredibly uh, good things. But, you know, even, even when you look at uh, those other two challenges about your, the money, the money side of your cases, it's just, a, it's, it, it really isn't, it isn't, you know, the paradigm needs to be at least looked at and, but even small changes over a period of time are going to make a big difference. And certainly that's, that's true on the exercise side. And it's even true on the safety side. If you, if you, if you say every, every 10th case, you're going to look at an opportunity to change something from a safety perspective in, or just, just your trucking cases or just your premises cases that involve a certain entity that you know does things wrong. You know, just one in, one in five cases, one in 10 cases, it's going to make a dramatic difference over a period of, of, of months and years. Um, so, and we'll all benefit from it. Absolutely. Great, Joe, that's wonderful. Thank you for all the good work you're doing and congratulations on all the success, both personal and professional. I look forward to uh, seeing you again in person very soon. And thank you for joining us. As do I. Thanks a bunch, Michael, for having me. I appreciate it a bunch. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you'd like to receive updates, insider information, and more from Trial Lawyer Nation, sign up for our mailing list at triallawyernation.com. You can also visit our episodes page on the website for show notes and direct links to any resources in this or any past episode. To help more attorneys find our podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast on any of our social media outlets. If you'd like access to exclusive, plaintiff lawyer-only content and live monthly discussions with me, send a request to join the Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle Facebook group. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to Delisi at CowanLaw.com. That's D-E-L-I-S-I at CowanLaw.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan. It is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our host, guest, and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.